0: Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Don't Fuck With The Original. I am your host, Casper. And I am your other host, Becky Grimlin. Here to bring you all things spooky on Wednesdays because... Wednesdays
1: are for podcasting.
0: You guys, tonight I'm so excited. Same. We have a director on with us tonight. Again, so, so grateful. Uh, Eric Myers, from the director of Butterfly Kisses is here with us tonight. And we are so grateful that he has taken time out of his schedule to be with us. So thank you so much, Eric.
2: You are crazy thanking me for taking <laughs> Because it is awesome to be here. It is awesome to be talking to you both and to your audience. This is great, thank you.
0: All right, well, are we gonna yeah. roll with uh, Blair, so yeah. Blair Witch? so Blair Witch. <laughs> um,
2: Blair Witch.
0: So, oh. Also, wait, yeah. so before we go into that, right. I seriously want to say, when I was watching this film and saw Eduardo, (laughs) I was like, they didn't get, oh, my God. Like, my heart, like, burst. That caught me off guard. (laughs) Because
1: there were a slew of cameos throughout the film where I was like, oh, okay, I know who that is, I know who that is, I know who that is. And then when it got to Eduardo, I was like, no. I was like, they did not. They did.
0: They did.
3: They did. The king. Oh. So,
2: we... (laughs) Here's Go the ahead. funny thing about getting about getting Ed in Butterfly Kisses is that, um, you know, for anybody that's not seen the film, it's you know sort of a fake documentary about found footage, right. and you know postulating the idea of what if somebody found what he or she thought was real life Blair Witch Project style found footage. Meaning, you know, discarded canisters of film or tapes or what have you that show the purported death or disappearance of the filmmakers in an alleged supernatural incident. What if somebody really found that? Mm -hmm. And what would happen if he or she tried to take it out to the masses? Um, What would the response be? You know, we've been duped by Blair Witch once. Um, We all know that documentaries and so-called reality TV, it's all malleable. It's created in the editing room. We cannot trust what we see. The camera, you know, doesn't lie. That's bullshit. We know it's bullshit. So if somebody really found, uh, you know, what they thought was, you know, a couple of student filmmakers going out into the woods chasing an urban legend with their camera and all sorts of spooky shit happens... Is the audience going to think this is real or are they going to go, look, we've seen, you know, a dozen movies of that sort? It's not even just limited to horror anymore. We got movies like Chronicle, that's the superhero version of found footage, or Cloverfield, the sci fi version of that. We know that, you know, Christopher Guest has done, you know, Waiting for Guffman and A Mighty Wind and Best in Show. We've <laughs> seen this is Spinal Tap. Uh, you know, there is such a thing as the mockumentary or the fake documentary. And the likelihood that anybody would believe it, is slim to remote so butterfly kisses is a story about it's essentially a documentary about this footage this guy has found and it's filled with cameos from real life people playing themselves so you mention ed and the great irony is ed Sanchez being the co-director of the Blair Witch Project along with Dan Myrick, um, he was the last person that I brought on. He was the only person who was not included in the original script, despite the fact that I knew him, I had met him. Um, Multiple people who were working on the film as producers knew him as well and had worked on some of his other films, Lovely Molly and Exists and films of that sort. We all had a direct line to him, and he was actually the last person we reached out to, simply by virtue of the fact that I was the holdout. Going, um, I love Ed. He's an awesome dude. Um, he's probably sick of talking about the Blair Witch Project, <laughs> and you know, he's a guy that's like, look, in '99, I became an international sensation. I made this film. I sort of, you know, took what had sort of been created with *Cannibal Holocaust* and you know, some other you know, so-called, you know, snuff films, and, you know, so-called, you know, docudramas or whatever, and he popularized what we now know as the popcorn version of found footage that we see in Paranormal Activity, and <clears throat> The Last Exorcism, and all of these other films. He's made other films since then, you know, he's yeah. directing episodes of Supernatural, he's working on From Dusk Till Dawn, the guy has had a healthy career afterwards. And if we go to him and go, Hey, look, we want you to play yourself and we want you to come into this fake documentary talking about this fake found footage, he's just gonna be like, What the fuck? You know, guys, I do other things. <laughs> and but it was the opposite. He was really, really cool. He was really enthusiastic and really generous with his time and he's a he's a sweetheart and he's very tall. <laughs>
0: very tall well
1: that is a the little more bit of, you
2: know <laughs> i know
1: like a little fun fact about ed sanchez that i had no no know. idea
2: um hey, no, no. pointed that out because i'm not on the particularly like you know sizable size of things i'm five seven and this guy is like you know seven three or whatever oh, oh my god no. photographs of the two of us standing next to one another being like you know thumbs up right you know, or you're on set. And it's like, I look like a Hobbit next
1: to this guy. I, I have a, uh, my, my cousin is a retired NBA basketball player. So I totally get it because he, I am five, two and a half. He is seven feet tall. I definitely (laughs) look like a Hobbit standing next to him. So I, I totally get that. Um, the reason why both of us were so excited, I know me in particular with seeing Ed, um, we were talking about this before we started rolling, which is a good place to kind of to kind of go because I've told this story a bunch of times and I know everybody's heard it, but I love telling it because I I particularly think it's funny um, because I was about 14, 13 or 14 when Blair Witch came out. So I really got to see how m- much it played on the psyche of the world, more so with the marketing of it that. They were able to keep the characters under wraps. They were able to literally, I mean, to the point that like <clears throat> their parents were getting like letters and cards and people like really thought, you know, bought into it. And I was so young and impressionable at the time that I, and I mean, I had never seen anything like that up until that point. My extent of horror films in particular was, you know, Freddie, Jason, Halloween, yada yada yada. Not that those movies aren't great, but you know, there's the one perfect thing that I've always said about horror is that it's one of few genres of films that can have so many subgenres to it. Like people that can say, "Oh, I don't like horror, but I love Silence of the Lambs." Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie. I mean, it's I don't know what you want to. I don't know, you know, apples and oranges, whatever, but. It is horror. It just happens to fit in this little cubby subgenre. So to say that, I was really impressionable. I totally bought it, thought it was real, hook, line, and sinker. Begged my parents to take me to Burkittsville for spring break, like wanted to go search for them. Um, You know, this was like early on with the internet. So they had the website and the documentaries afterwards and everything. And then I'm so glad you remembered this because not long, I think maybe about a year after or so, however long they kept up with it, Heather Donahue was in a Steak and Shake commercial. And it was like a nationwide, if anybody out there that's listening doesn't know what Steak and Shake is, there's not too many of them around anymore. But it was like a franchise, uh, like burger place. And she's like a waitress in the commercial. And it broke my heart because I was like, she's not missing in the woods in Burkittsville, Maryland she's working at steak anything. and shake at least I know she's okay she's got a job and she's <laughs> doing great so <laughs> but from that point on I mean that really changed that sort of changed the game with me with horror and seeing that 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 type of horror not only can really be a solid genre sub-genre but I mean it can sort of go <clears throat> anywhere and it did um and then, like you were saying, even even just with things like Cloverfield, I mean, it didn't just, it sort of, and uh, what was the other one with the, the superhero one you Chronicle. mentioned? Chronicle. Which is great, too. So it kind of, like, went all over. The next real big horror one that I thought could have been very easily bought into with the way that Orn Pelle did it was Paranormal Activity. And I mean, well, people believed it because Katie Featherston oh, literally yeah. in an
0: interview was like, I would go out to the store and people would run away from me. Oh, I <laughs> would I would be eyeballing her the whole time after that movie. If I, saw if her, I was, I if like, I was there, I would have been like, Oh my God, Katie Featherston sign.
2: <laughs>
0: right. So
2: I, it's, you know, it's really interesting that you bring, bring that up just because it's, the interesting thing about horror films is that horror has traditionally been known as sort of the lowest, least respected yes. genre on the ladder. It is literally one notch above pornography. Yep. And it is also very much like pornography in the sense that, <laughs> like porn, it is the one genre where you do not need name actors Yes. Uh, you do not need um, a variety of locations. It can be made cheaply. It can look bad and it can sound bad, as long as there is the tease, the build up, the money shot, <laughs> rinse and repeat, and mm-hmm. we get that over and over and over again. And so, you know, horror is so incredibly profitable. It's why we, you know, we we look at movies like. You know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 74 was made for almost nothing. Yes. But but what a lot of people don't realize is that the mafia came in and scooped that movie up. Um, you know, it's it. you you have people who are, ex, you know, using an exploitative genre to exploit because it creates a return it's just like porn in that regard and so it's very very cool when you see filmmakers who say okay look i have a limited budget i have restricted resources how can i make something that is going to reach an audience and is going to be successful and have a return on my investment and allow me to potentially go up the stairs to the next level and the next level and get more money and more opportunities. And what Ed and Dan did with the Blair Witch Project that was so brilliant was they said, we don't have any cash. You know, We can't go out and make a big creature feature film. So what can we do with what we have? And the idea Mm -hmm. of saying it's gonna look like shit and it's gonna sound like shit because it's supposed to look like shit and it's supposed to sound like shit. And that not only creates a, you know, it gives you a hall pass, a suspension of disbelief when you're watching it, but it also is like, you know, it's creating that verisimilitude. The audience is watching it and buying into it. And a film like The Blair Witch Project. Is at its least successful, in my opinion, when you watch it in a movie theater full of people. It's better when you sit down in a dark room on your tube TV with a VHS copy that you put in the VCR and you experience that completely buying into the premise and that what you're seeing is something you're not supposed to be seeing. That's what's so brilliant about it, yeah. and that's why *Lightning in a Bottle* you can't do that twice.
1: I, I couldn't agree more i i think that's why found i feel like footage. they
0: stand up standing like
1: i know right i i feel like found footage is i feel like that's why found footage is one of those one of those specific sub subgenres that can either be done so good or so bad because
0: <laughs> I, you, you it, come it's... across some where you're like ooh. Sure. You're just like, yeah, he so really, or, or, it's okay, this, they gave the it a shot, shot, but it not together. Is it's the story. Because the just story. like you said, you can, it can sound shitty. It can look shitty. Right. I don't right. really care. If your story reaches out and grabs me, that's what I love about found footage so much. That's why Blair Witch is amazing. That's why your movie is amazing because nothing has ever been done about peeping Tom. That's why Par- Paranormal Activity is amazing. Taking of Deborah Logan, Hell House LLC. I mean, I could sit here and go on and on about Host. I mean, like you have all of these found footage films that have their own concept. And that's what yeah. really makes them reach out to me. And that's why yours did. Because I was like, okay, first of all, I've never seen a movie about Paping Tom. You know, second of all, I've never seen a movie about a lore like this. And, you know, thirdly, it's done, it's almost like I'm watching it knowing it isn't real, but my brain also goes, mm. But is it?
2: <laughs> well, you know, the thing that's, that that was really important to me when sort of strategizing what Butterfly Kisses was going to be which is, you know, really kind of a, it's its its an onion, you know, you've got the found footage movie in the middle of it, and then you've got this fake documentary filled with real people playing themselves who are all sort of authoritative people commenting mm-hmm. on the footage that we as the audience are watching. And then you've got, you know, an extra layer around that that has me as the director of this documentary watching my documentary essentially going off the rails because people are losing their shit with this found footage. So, you know, the the thing that was really, you know, inspirational for lack of a, you know, a better, Mm -hmm. less cheesy term is the fact that. I was there when Blair Witch happened in '99. I was in my 20s when that movie came out, and I was not only plugged into what was happening with horror, but that was the early Wild West days of the internet. You know, yes, when it was the early websites like Ain't it Cool News and Dark Horizons, and uh, you know, places like that were getting these fan scoops. Um, you know, they were getting spy reports and. You know, it was all very much kind of under the table and it progressed once the studios saw that these, you know, these things called, you know, fan websites were going out and getting their own news, getting their own reports, um, you know, feeding film freaks like myself information about the movies before we ever saw a trailer. Uh, Before Entertainment Weekly or Variety had a chance to break who was going to star in The Lord of the Rings, we knew because, you know, people on the inside were using code names and passing the information Mm -hmm. along to websites. And then eventually the movie studios started, you know, greasing the palms of these people. And now we have what we have, which is just another form of media. But back then, when you heard about the Blair Witch Project... Six months before it came out, you know, when it when it was, you know, making its rounds at Con before it was out in the theaters, and there was this early buzz. Um, You know, there there was sort of the misinformation about it, which is it is real, and it is you know a real, you know, assembled. You know, it's footage that was really found and it shows what it purports to show. And then there were other people who were in the know going, hey, look, it's it's actually bullshit. That's how it's being marketed. But it's going to blow people away because the masses are going to think it's real. Now, I hate and to interrupt, so, but
1: wasn't it con where they put up the missing posters? Like, wasn't that part of yes. the marketing at con that they actually did have the, the Heather...
2: It was either Con or Sundance, but I want. Or to say Sun, okay, Con it might
1: have Sundance. been Sundance. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, even.
2: Yeah, they were slapping all that stuff up there. It was all this swag they had that yes. you know was building this sort of you know impression of what the film was, and so I was super excited because again I was living on these websites back in that time, and you know I might have managed to you know through certain sources, because I was beginning at that time to write film criticism, um, I might've gotten to see The Blair Witch Project early. And um, I can tell you that it was fucking scary. (laughs) Even if you knew what it really was. The fact was that, you know, this thing that essentially looked like a snuff film, um, we've gotten tastes of that in other films whether that was in something like, you know, again, Cannibal Holocaust or Mondo Kanya or, you know, going all the way back to the nook of the north, you know, right. fake documentaries. we have gotten tastes of that. To be able to sit down and watch something in a dark room alone, it, 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 it was unlike anything most people have seen, as you yourself have, you know, attested. And the fact that, um, you know, the distributors used that early Wild West day of the internet to create the false impression that these people were really missing or they died and the footage was real it was all a marketing stunt but it's that sort of genius moment that genius lightning in a bottle that can never be duplicated so when butterfly kisses was something that i was creating something that i was really trying to stress to my producers and all of my collaborators was look we're not going to fool people by telling them that this found footage is real and i don't want to i want to go the opposite direction i want to build some buzz for the movie on the film festival circuit and tour it around the united states and just go from city to city and show it at festival to festival no trailer no plot synopsis just people walk in the movie starts and it is oh look it's it's found footage it's you know clearly bullshit it's you know hitting all the you know sort of plot points that we know that we can expect from this particular subgenre of horror but then it switches over to this documentary and it's filled with real people and while i will never advocate anyone pull out their phone in a movie theater because that is one of the Shittiest things you can do in the world. Yes, yes. Um people were pulling out their phones and Googling the names that were coming up <laughs> and looking at one another and going, this person, what are we watching? I mean that's kind and
1: of that, how I was too. I was like kind of it's what I did. I I knew I didn't have to Google, but I was like, Oh wait, the, that they're real, but what is happening? Yeah, so
2: And and that was a lot of fun. It was like I don't you know, the movie goes out of its way to stress repeatedly, we're not telling you the found footage is real. We're actually saying the found footage is probably a hoax, um, but we have real people telling you why it's a hoax. And what they're doing as they're informing you, the viewer, that it isn't real, <laughs> they're also commenting on the subgenre of found footage, the tropes, the things that we expect to see. It's why the found footage is filled with all of these very sort of like, you know, checklisty things that, you you know, you tick off. But the documentary, in my mind, needed to feel 100% authentic because I wanted people to watch the documentary and go, this is a real documentary about bullshit found footage. And even if they found out five minutes after they walked out of the theater, even if I got up into the Q&A and spoiled it for them immediately, I wanted people to have fun with that and Mm -hmm. go chasing on Google who these people were and going, I don't know how much of what I just watched was real. And to enjoy that the way I enjoyed that with Blair Witch back in '99.
1: That's what I really appreciated about this because this it, was my Blair Witch because like I didn't again. get I yeah. didn't
0: get the Blair Witch. I you was didn't five. Get that
3: crazy. Yeah.
0: I, <laughs> <laughs> <you didn't
1: laughs>
3: I,
0: I wasn't allowed to watch anything like that, so I didn't get. I mean, Blair Witch is still my favorite, but I'm always going to be jealous that I didn't get to experience it, thinking it was real. Ever in my life, and
1: this did that for mm-hmm. me all over again because I, I personally love documentaries. Um, oh yeah, mm-hmm. I can get lost in watching documentaries. Um, I, I, I just think they're really informative on a, on a variety of different subjects and. It's one of the reasons why I love *Taking of Deborah Logan* so much. Right, it's literally documentary well, style. Well, and *Taking of Deborah sure. Logan* really two <clears throat> two things that really got me with that movie in particular was not only was it shot documentary style, which I appreciated. I at one time was a nurse assistant that worked specifically worked with dementia and Alzheimer's patients, um, mainly because I had a, a close neighbor that had I kind of saw her unfortunately go through Alzheimer's <clears throat> and then succumb <clears throat> to it. So that movie like really when a movie can sort of like hit you on a personal level, too, on top of being a certain genre that you can really appreciate, then it kind of hits on all levels. And then, of course, it was just an incredible film, too. But this movie in particular, with loving documentaries as much as I did, I when I when she ultimately told me about it, I watched it by myself. Did not know what to expect at all. Just sat at home and was like, okay, I'm ready to watch this. And really was like, believed the documentary, but like really didn't know if the actual like film that, well, the the two main characters are Sophia and Feldman. I didn't, I still was like trying to struggle with the fact if like this film was real, especially when, Um, the part towards the end of the film, uh, when Ed uh, Ed Sanchez is talking about, um, because this is something that we've discussed, that's always a thing with found footage is how do you explain the camera always being on? So there's always got to there always has to be a reason in found footage that has to go along with the storyline to explain why is the camera on all the time? Otherwise. It just looks weird or creepy or just ultimately doesn't make any sense. So, like Blair Witch, you know they were film students. Sophie and Feldman are film students. Okay, that makes sense. And then the film is about this peeping Tom Blinkman character. Okay, that makes sense. But then when he appears and then they're going and I'm I'm like by the end of the film I still didn't know. I was still <laughs> I'll be honest with you and I mean. I think that's what really got me was because I have, I was like, I have not felt like this since Blair Witch, but now I'm a whole grown, almost 40 year old woman. And I'm sitting here and questioning if what I just watched was was real or not, or maybe part of it was, or I don't really, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I, have, I don't know. So that, that to me was one thing that I, appreciated so much was I had not felt that way before no found footage film even as great as Paranormal Activity was and you're right they went to real Oren Pele went to really great links to to make sure that you didn't know who Katie was and you didn't know who Mika was you didn't know but you 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 basically knew it wasn't (laughs) real this was the first time since Blair Witch that I had watched something where as a grown-up I was questioning whether or not this was real i i mean i i admittedly i was like googling afterwards i was like okay
0: there like, was blah, 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 blah. one other film <laughs> one other film that i can say i still to this day there's a part of me that feels like it's real is the fourth kind and sure. when i saw oh the fourth, well, yeah the when i saw nine, the fourth two, kind yeah. when i was like i was like 18 or 19 i swear to you i didn't sleep for a week i was googling this how i was googling the name of the city i was googling everything i'm like is this real is this no, actually because it took real so many elements too <laughs> i think when something can take elements of real life mm-hmm. to
1: where you know if you can if you believe in aliens and there have been these weird sightings in alaska and you take all these different things it was i mean the fourth kind did that to me too um but i think then the style of butterfly kisses specifically being a documentary anything that's documentary style can really sort of screw screw with you a little bit. It's it's hard to know. You're like, wait a minute, what am I watching here? Like, what is this? And I I can say for me, I'm not really sure how Casper felt about it. You know, I I watched the movie alone and then I watched it again with my husband and I so he thought my husband thought Gavin was just a total dick. <laughs> he didn't really like Gavin. He was like oh screw that guy he cares more about this crap than his family so he looked at it from a different perspective. I felt sorry for Gavin in this weird way. I like, I because I I almost put myself in his position. I like you said, if I found something like that, and I with my whole heart believed it was real, especially in his position where he was a filmmaker, he didn't want to. He did. He he really wanted to, but then that kind of messed with you too because you're like, oh wait, he's a filmmaker, huh? Like, cause I love how you like, well, why do you have this camera? Why do you have this? If he's a filmmaker, is this real? Is it, did he put this together? But I think if I was him, if I found something like that, I mean, he became so obsessed with it. I think the obsession, um, that sort of, that made me feel for Gavin. There was like this, this, this empathy I had. I had for him in the film. So I I loved to watching it with someone else and sort of getting these different viewpoints and specifically the Gavin character, because he is so central to wondering whether this whole thing is really real or not, because it messed with him so bad.
2: you you touched on a whole bunch of points just now that, that I'd love to go down the rabbit hole on, but I I will, I will come to your, to your last one first. And that is that, this was a really difficult film to edit and the reason it was so (laughs) difficult is because you know it, it was scripted I wrote a screenplay for it what I did not expect was that I would end up with a first assembly that was three hours long and you know I mean we ended up I kept throwing new ideas at people and going, let's go with this, let's do that too, here's a new plot point, things that weren't even in the screenplay. And it was great stuff, but what it ended up with was a three-hour first assembly, and that is discounting all of the footage that I didn't even put into the first assembly. I was like, I'm only going to put stuff in here that I feel... If this movie were going to be released in this form, all of these scenes are vital. They all are absolutely essential to the story. and it's three hours long. And so you know I had a I had about five minutes where it was like, you know I'm talking to my producers and going, well, do we want to do a web series out of this? Do we want to make it like, you know, like a Netflix series where it's, you know six episodes of thirty minutes or something like that?" And ultimately, what we all decided was, well, look, we need to go with what the original pitch was, which is a 90-minute film that we can take to all of the various film festivals and to horror conventions and be able to screen in a nice little bite-sized chunk of time and then be able to release to all of the you know streaming platforms and on Blu-ray and DVD and all of that. And trying to turn that three hour cut into the 91 minutes that is currently on the Blu-ray that is currently streaming on Amazon and Tubi and all of those other places. I mean, it was, it took a year, it took a year, a solid year to go even just from the three hour cut. I mean, and that took a while to put together, but to try to whittle it back, you know, you're shaving seconds at a time to, to essentially cut off half of the film you know you're you are removing half the runtime and that there are so many storylines that are connected and interlocking Um, it it was such a balancing act to try to not you know in any way cripple any of those various you know components to the story in the service of getting it down to a commercial runtime. Um eventually, and we did test screenings, we had people you know essentially come in off the street and watch this film and you know tell us what was working and what wasn't working, what was clear, what wasn't clear. Ed Sanchez was incredibly generous with his time. He watched multiple cuts of the film and you know, if you're going to take your sort of um, you know, uh, uh, avant- take on a genre that someone else essentially created or at the very least popularized the best thing you do is you go to the source and go what's working here what is good and what is not and I guess where I'm trying to go with this is that the Gavin character it has been so interesting to me to hear so many different perspectives on whether this character was obnoxious whether you understood his plight whether you felt for him whether you wanted to see him get his just desserts and so much of that came down to the editing because it was like if I just nudge this a little bit to the left the guy is a completely unlikable dipshit and (laughs) we want to watch him die if I nudge it just a little bit to the right he's too sympathetic If I, you know, nudge it slightly over there, he's really funny and the whole thing turns into a comedy. So (laughs) what am I trying to do with this character? And working with my my co-editor, Kenny Johnson, I mean, it was just like, it was a nightmare and it it was a lot of, I mean, it was a good nightmare. um, (laughs) There were a lot of passionate arguments about, you know, is this scene going to make him look too, you know, are we going to care about him too much? How much is caring about him too much? I was always sort of of the I really want to make him an unreliable narrator. You don't know if you can trust the guy, and you know my co-editor Kenny is just like we need to feel something for him so that when everything goes off the rails at the end, um, you know we're we're invested in the character. So it was a lot of it was a lot of push pull, and it was very challenging. And it's it's just very gratifying for me now to have so many different perspectives and it makes me go, I'm glad that people aren't walking away from this movie and going, the protagonist or anti-hero, as I prefer to call him, you know, is is, you know, the anti-hero is either likable or tragic or despicable or, you know, whatever, depending on what you bring into the film. I, I find that very satisfying.
0: I, I, mean, I personally, yeah. I hate him and I like him.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say. I what actually your perspective I, was of him
0: both both ways because, like her, I feel for him because I've also seen a lot of other movies and experienced this myself, where I get so obsessed with something, it's my primal focus, and especially when you are trying to prove a point. Sure. So the guy was definitely a Taurus. <laughs> but um, I also see the Gavin other is Gavin is a Taurus I also see the other side though because I'm like dude your family is doing everything they can to get your attention and you're just like the movie the movie the movie and you fucking stole their money yeah my husband like, I think that's
1: where my husband sort of stepped in and was really like no he was very much like as a husband you don't <laughs> do this and that's that's why i love how you said in editing it the way it ultimately came out so many people like like my husband can take his point of view and look at himself in it and have this perspective but then i can look at it and put myself in it and look at it from a completely different perspective and go yeah i understand all that and i totally get it and you're right but He believed this, like this, he really wanted people, but not only that, he thought that if this, this was sort of, this was going to be like the make it or break it. Like this was it. I mean, you pretty well knew like things were sort of falling apart with his family and not to give too many things away if people haven't seen it, but um, things are starting to fall apart. And I, I think that's something I appreciated too, because it's like elements of um. You know, you have to wonder with certain early filmmakers or filmmakers just starting out, independent filmmakers, like, what do they go through when they're trying to make something? And then this falls in his lap and he's like, oh, I have something here. I'm going to do everything I can to try to do this because this is all I've got. Like, this is like, or how he (laughs) felt like this is my one, this is my one shot. And, um... I mean, do you feel like were there any i i've i wa- i have wanted to ask you this personally. were there any elements that maybe yourself or maybe other people you've known that have that are filmmakers starting out that maybe a little bit of that sort of went into Gavin like this 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 passion for this film and like you just have to like was there a little bit of that either in you or other people you may know or?
2: yes and no i mean not that
1: obsessive of course but just the (laughs) you know yeah (laughs) like not to yeah
2: it's it's interesting that you ask because as a writer um i i have a very sort of firm mission statement with myself which is that um i am never going to tell My story, my truth when I make a film, I find it um, very transparent when you're watching a movie or reading a story and you realize that it's, it's the writer's story but it's their perspective on their story. So, you know, the poor guy who has the terrible dead-end job, who feels he's being mistreated by his boss and mistreated by his wife, writes a story about the poor, you know, guy with the dead-end job who's being mistreated by his boss and (laughs) mistreated by his wife. And, you know, he is always (laughs) going to be the hero in his story. He is always going to be the most virtuous. And I find that just... Nauseating whenever I see that in writing, and so it's always been a thing for me. And it's funny because this film I appear as myself, right? <laughs> and nonetheless, I was like, This can't be Eric's story, right? Nonetheless, um, I did feel it was important to sort of tap into my own experiences with this film and, and even my own personal life because I. I wanted to talk about a number of things I wanted to talk about you know for one thing I want to talk about belief systems and you know how an idea becomes a social construct you know what is the we all know what the Loch Ness monster is supposed to be but what is the inciting incident and then how do people feed that until it becomes a you know an an accepted belief that whether you believe in the Loch Ness monster or Bigfoot or not here is the place where supposedly there's a monster and there is you know supposedly evidence for it how how do we get to that point i really wanted to talk about that i also very much wanted to talk about found footage as a genre i want to talk about the conventions and the tropes but i wanted to talk about filmmaking and i wanted to you know really make sure that the three storylines that are running in tandem here were talking about different phases of filmmaking that I felt qualified to discuss based on my own experience. They didn't have to be one-to-one, but they still needed to be fed by experiences that I had had people that I had encountered, experiences I had seen for myself that were occurring to other people. And so you you start off with the story in the middle, the found footage story, which is, you know, two student filmmakers are chasing an urban legend and bad stuff happens. But over the course of their pursuit, they are running into what is essentially the film school experience, the things I, I saw for myself, I was involved with. Uh, which is when you're a film student, every project you're working on is the most important thing in the world. This is what my, my, you know, peers in the program are going to see my academic advisors and professors. This is what's going to play at the student film festival. And this person I've been paired with that I don't want to work with, they're fucking it up and it's going to (laughs) ruin my name. And I'm not going to be able to get into NYU after I leave here. You know, it's, that experience, the film school experience, and the conflicts that happened there, making that film that, frankly, by the next semester, you're going to be horrified and embarrassed by it, because now you're completely invested in your newest project that next semester you're going to be horrified and embarrassed by anyway. (laughs) So I really wanted to talk about that friction that happens with film students working together. On the next level, um, the story about Gavin York, who's the guy who supposedly finds this found footage and is now trying to take it out to the world, that I am making a documentary about his journey, trying to validate and profit off of this found footage about these two filmmakers. I wanted his story to be something that I had seen and continue to see, which is, you know, post film school, there are the people who jump on a plane or a bus. And they go to New York or they go to Atlanta or they go to L.A. and, you know, they pursue this professionally. And then there are people like myself who say, well, I'm going to stay where I am, but I'm just I'm going to make independent films. But then you get this third subset, which is people who finish the program. They have their college degree, but they have no plan and they don't really know what to do you know they don't know how to get a film off the ground or maybe they're good at what they you know they're good shooters but they they don't know how to write a script they they can't direct and they're like adrift and lost and i'm just going to shoot weddings right now to you know kill some time and the next thing you know you're married you've got a child you've got a mortgage 40 is rapidly approaching my time to do this is almost past what do I do? Everything's falling apart. My wife, my child, my husband, my day job. These are weights attached to my ankle dragging me down. I wanted to tell that story and about a guy who, just on the cusp of utter defeat, has stumbled upon something. Now, did he find it? is it real did he fake it yeah that's up to you as the viewer to decide but the point is that's his story and this is his last gasp and he is willing to you know throw everything into the fire if it means making you know rolling the dice on this and having it pay off and then there was the last component which is my story you know the the guy who's directing this documentary about this dude who's got a film crew following him around. And just like in real life, I'd made a feature film. It had come out. It had gotten notices. It got me connection. It got me investors. I had money. I'm making this movie, Butterfly Kisses. And what happens when you've gone, I've already made that movie. I'm ahead of Gavin York. I've made a movie. I've gotten the LA you know, Times to review it. I've gotten good press. Um but this next movie has to be even better and more successful or else it's going to destroy me. And now, shit, everything is going off the rails. My subject has just, like, disappeared. My crew is mad at me. Um, I don't know how to pay anybody anymore. What the fuck am I going to do? Uh, because this has to pay off because I owe people money that they invested in this. So, again, you know, none of those things were one-to-one. That None of them were necessarily my truth. But it was it was just pulling all of these things I'd experienced and seen happen to other people, people that I knew very well and people that I knew where I went, oh, yeah, you you were the star of the student film festival that semester. And now you're ringing me up at Petco for the dog food that I'm buying. Um, yeah. Hey, you're still, are you still working on film? No, you're not working on any films. Oh, <laughs> no. well, uh, you know, I hope it all works out for you. So, you yeah. Know that's the that's the the world of it's the business of show
1: yeah that was' in, that's that's incredible looking at it that way because even with your story you know there's sort of that part when Gavin you know after Ed shows up and then re- things really fall off the rails for Gavin and then the part where your crew sort of like turns on you and acts like it's your fault and you know my husband made a point of saying like, He, it's you, but I mean, like, he backed you up. He was sort of like, whoa, wait a minute, Uh uh-uh, no, that is not, so that was kind of a weird dichotomy that I'm sure some people would have, like, opposing viewpoints where it was like, okay, was Eric pushing too hard because he really wanted his film made, or did he say look, hey, I want to stay out of this. But if you really want my help, I'll help you. But if this doesn't work out, this is on you like this, you know, I just, you know, I gave you the help. But if it doesn't work out, hey, like, that's not on me. And so that was a real interesting point too, when the movie kind of, you know, essentially, like when the shit was really hitting the fan with everything with Gavin, like, that really took on a whole component where your story Ultimately came out, and then people sort of had to look at you in a way and go, "Well, wait, what about this guy in the movie that he's trying to get made, and like, what's his responsibility?" I would in just it. like so, to say, I
3: never
0: blamed you.
1: No, well, <laughs> no, because you can't. You know,
0: people. It was there was parts of huge it where it like you have to of have shit your, just coming down all yeah. at once, and unfortunately, everyone was caught in the crossfire. That yeah, and like finding that's what finding happened. him in the. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) No, no, no. I I didn't mean to talk over here. I was just going to say the truth of the matter is that the director is the most popular person from the time you were doing, you know, here's my script and I'm hiring you. And now we're doing table reads and casting and all that. And then they stop being the most popular beloved person the day you step onto set. And then once you're rap and you have the rap party, uh, the director becomes the most beloved person again as they're like, fine-tuning the edit and releasing the trailers and going, we're going to be premiering at this film festival and we're going to show up and it's going to be great and then it's coming out on such and such date. During the shoot, uh, the, the, the director, everybody hates the director. Everybody <laughs> hates the director. Because yeah. the director is the one who has the job. Um, if, if the cast and the crew love the director... Because the director is giving them what they need in the moment, that director is, in my opinion, take it for what it's worth, failing the cast and crew, because um, they need to be the one pushing. He or she has the vision in their head. If they're going about it the right way, the thing that they wrote, or the thing that they have, you know, opted and are now, you know, taking that script and making it a film. It is their job to push people. Uh, you know, it sucks today, but the film is going to last forever. And when it plays on a big screen, and that actor has brought their friends and family to that festival, or it's today is the the Blu-ray release, or it's streaming on Prime or whatever, and people sit down and watch it, and it's like, you know, you you kind of sucked in that scene or, you know, you're, you're watching it and you're just going, you know, Oh man, I, I, I could have done better. Why did the director not push me harder? You know? And if the director's like, well, you were kind of stressed out by it. It was a long day. We had to skip lunch. We had to work through our location, fell through, blah, blah, blah. You failed your cast. You failed your crew. You have to be an asshole. The, the previous film that I made, it's a movie called roulette and roulette is this really, really dark, sort of like European art house, Lars von Trier style, psychological thriller. I, Gotta admit watch that.
1: And- I have, I admittedly prior to, sorry again to interrupt. Uh, I have not seen that yet, but, uh, I admittedly prior to the interview did, did read up on it, did not ruin anything for me, but read up enough on it where I was like, uh, I, I love how you said lo- Lars von Trier because, um, I really love his stuff, as as dark as it is. I mean, Antichrist, I thought was brilliant, but I also adore Willem Dafoe. Um, yes. So, was a
2: firefight. I,
1: I have to see Roulette. <laughs> I, I am so excited about seeing. Yeah, I, I watch that. I really, really am excited.
2: Well, please do. I mean, it's it's streaming on Prime right now. Please uh, give a couple yes. cents towards my college, college, my son's college education. Plan. Will do. Um,
1: Absolutely. I'm still paying <laughs> off, so I understand. <laughs>
2: very different movie than butterfly kisses and i feel personally as a writer director that every movie should be different from the last one it should always be different because otherwise you just get stuck in that one thing and who gives a shit at that point um but when i made that movie there is you know you're talking about antichrist there is a certain scene in particular that we all know from antichrist that everybody's like oh my god that scene well there's a scene in roulette that you know i'm not going to say it's comparable but it is the equivalent in that film in that when we you know did our world premiere people jumped up in the theater and ran for the door it would be banned from a couple of film festivals <laughs> Wow! one scene at the end and the day that we filmed it um The actor involved, she's this this lovely young lady named Allie Lukowski that I went to film school with, that I've worked with on numerous um, films, and I wrote this role for her. And I was like, if anybody is brave enough to do the end of this film, it's you. And I had had her up for like 12 hours of overnight shooting, and the location we needed to film this climactic moment this horrible thing that her entire story has built toward that has to be absolutely just the worst thing you've ever seen Um, was I was only able to get into that location after we had done a 12 hour overnight shoot. And so she is running on just sheer nerve juice and anxiety. And we've you know rushed as the sun is coming up, we've rushed the crew, we've rushed the cast. To this farmhouse, we're going to film this thing. Everybody is fried. Um, We have like, you know, literally almost no time before the owners kick us out. (laughs) And we start prepping the scene, which again was terrible, terrible in terms of its content. And Allie was just standing in the hallway, ready to go in and shoot the thing. And she's shaking, her hands are shaking. And she looks at me and she said, Eric, I just need... I just need a hug right now and i said fuck you you don't get a hug go in there and do this horrible goddamn thing and the entire time that we filmed it i was yelling insults at her knowing we would strip the audio out we would adr it and uh that what she is doing on camera in this scene is so awful it's so awful and she was so fried and just needed somebody to tell her everything was okay and i was like if i give her a hug and I talk her down off the ledge and tell her everything's okay. She's going to go in there. Yep. And if I have to be like, Allie, just, you know, just do this thing. And it's all going to be over with. She's not going to give the performance that has now won her multiple awards for that performance. She hated me in that moment. And my crew were all just like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're <laughs> to horrible to this girl. And I was like, it sucks today. Films forever. And that's the scene. That's the scene in that movie. And now I'm going to think about that when I watch it. Investors and got me butterfly kisses. Was that scene? So
0: well, now I'm well, going to think about that when I watch it. I'm going to be like, man, that really sucks. But holy shit, this is so good.
1: Well, it's <laughs> like what you find out later during the filming of The Shining. Yeah. How 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 brutal? Uh, uh, they were brutal. What, what Shelley Duvall had to go through, and how brutal. Yep. Stanley Kubrick was to her in scenes and just over and over and over. But I mean, you would not have gotten, again, that film would last lasted forever. You would not have gotten her in that role of what that film ultimately became had she not been
2: token, pushed. Not to, talk, not to talk over you, you're absolutely right. But then you look at Danny Lloyd, who was sheltered so much this
1: by This is Kirk. true.
2: He didn't want the kid to know what the film was about that he was in. Yeah. So it's very funny the way, you know, sometimes you have to sort of, you know, and and this
3: happened Hide the kid, but,
2: you know, where I had a different directing style with, when we were doing the found footage stuff, we shot all the found footage stuff first, right? Right. And then once we had that, then we did the documentary around it. And so while we were doing the found footage, you know, there is not only this conflict between the two film students Sophia and Feldman but you know that that conflict is not just born out of the content of their project but based on the fact that they've done prior work together she had gotten all the departmental accolades he was just viewed as this kind of slacker who just hit you know record and stop on a camera you know, the teacher they go to talk to clearly loves Sophia and doesn't have the time of day for Feldman. And I wanted to create this dynamic wherein, as they have now captured the paranormal entity on their camera, on his camera no less, the balance of power is shifting from the director to the director of photography. And part of how I handled that is that the actress who played Sophia a lovely young lady named Rachel Armiger. I love Rachel so very much and the actor who played Feldman also a lovely young man named uh named Reed and Reed is like Reed Delisle is just this really super likable guy he's just like the most laid-back dude in the entire world um but he's sensitive he's very sensitive And I realized that. And whereas Rachel, you know, she's, it all just kind of rolls off of her. And that's not to say that Reed is in any way unprofessional or, you know, handled himself um, inappropriately. It just means, you know, you can sort of see uh, when something is bothering him. You could sense that if you're paying attention, if you've got your director goggles on, you can see that. And so much of directing is being a therapist. So much of it is sort of going You know what makes this actor tick what makes that actor tick how far can i push that person but how far can i push that person and when i realized the conflict i needed to create between them and the fact that reed was and is a very sensitive guy um what i started doing was i started patterning my directing of the two of them together in a way where i was all about rachel I was, I was just, you know, fawning all over her and basically ignoring Reed. Wow. And that also included when we would go to set and I would introduce them to the, to the people they'd be playing opposite. um, I always deferred to Rachel and with Reed, it was just kind of like, you know, uh, and this is Reed Delisle and, you know, Reed's playing Feldman and, you know, he's just going to stand over there. And. It, it bothered him it oh my God. very much bothered him and again that's where we get back to the director becomes the biggest shitbag on set <laughs> and people are just like why the fuck are you doing this but it upset him and it empowered her and whether they realized it in the moment they definitely realized it since because i'm like i i loved you guys equally but i had to sort of approach you differently so that in the moment there would be a friction between the two of you and sort of a, a vying for who would get the, the on-camera attention or the on-set attention. And, um, yeah, it's, you, you kind of have to take an unorthodox way about things. If you're, if you're really trying to create a vibe, if you're really trying to give it that verisimilitude and whether that, whether that translates or not, um, I don't know sort of open to debate is, is that a good directing style? Is that just alienating your cast? Is that just creating unnecessary friction? I, I will say that I definitely was always about, I wanted the two of them to love one another. I wanted them to get along with one another in real life. But when we were on set, I had to sort of treat them as their character and treat her like the star and treat him like the background player. And... I, I, I would like to think that it translates. And Reed, if you are listening to this right now, I love you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you did a great job. And oh, my exactly, God. Exactly what you needed to do. And unfortunately, we had to kind of make you feel like Feldman so that you could be Feldman.
0: I think yeah. that, that style of directing is genius, actually, because you're, you're kind of doing exactly what your job is (laughs) because essentially you're you're directing them subconsciously you're literally putting it into their heads where they are even because clearly obviously if they didn't want to be on the movie and they were like well this guy's a dick they would have just walked off but clearly you have a relationship with your cast members and with your crew members to where they know where you're coming from And it's almost like you're able to do it subconsciously and i think that that's absolutely brilliant
2: it was it was very interesting thing uh, interesting thing for me to do because you know growing up i was always in the school plays i was I, i was always in the plays and never because i wanted to be an actor but rather because i knew that i wanted to make movies someday i wanted to direct and As I was reaching high school and really starting to take these things seriously (laughs) and really starting to study screenwriting, I was thinking to myself, well, look, I don't want to be an actor. I have no interest in being on camera. And in fact, I'm only in Butterfly Kisses because I felt like I could only do the complete meta circle if I actually appeared as myself. But I was like, I have no interest in acting. This is not something I want to do. But I do need to understand what it takes for a person to go there and to understand it for myself so that when I'm working with directing other people, I can hopefully be better at facilitating that. And, you know, there, there are these famous directors like, you know, Kubrick was abusive, as we said, but then like Hitchcock was somebody who really treated his, his actors like furniture. And yes. despite the fact that he hadn't to work with actors and I didn't want to be that guy and I definitely want didn't want to be the guy who was like George Lucas and it was just like, you know, faster, more intense. I just wanted to, <laughs> you know, I wanted to help a person get to where they needed to go. And so when we did Butterfly Kisses and we had our very, very first meeting with Reed and with Rachel as Sophia and Feldman, I was like, I mean, when they auditioned, everybody had fake sides for a movie that wasn't real Um, It was very important to me as we are not only trying to create a movie that's going to blur, you know, fact and fantasy a little bit and create some question marks as to what the hell this movie is, how much of it's real and not. Um, I felt that it was important to create a sort of mystery around the project and, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's a small incestuous pool out here in baltimore and everybody is jumping from set to set and talking about what they just auditioned for and what people they know and so i think i needed to kind of keep it under wraps and at the same time i'm also you know in blair witch town you know i'm in maryland i'm right right here and i i didn't want to create a false impression of the film i was making so they all the actors did false sides and their auditions they did not understand why they were being asked to do the things I was asking them to do. That's a whole other conversation. But the bottom line is when I finally sat them down and said, You guys are cast. Um, you just need to sign this contract and, you know, tell me that you're officially in and you're in the movie. Um, here's the basic idea of what it is. And I kind of gave them a real quick, you know, it's a fake movie about a fake movie about a fake movie. There are two ways we can do this. I can either give you guys the script, because there is a script. I can give you the script. Or we can go full method. And in going full method, what that means is you were going to shoot in chronological order. Everything that happens is a reaction to what happened the last time we filmed. But you are only going to get the pages for the scene you are in.
3: Okay.
2: And so, if the two of you are in a scene together, you're both going to get the pages for that. But if Rachel, as Sophia, is going to be having her own scenes over here or doing little video diary interviews with herself and stuff, or if Feldman is off on his little adventures or whatever, the other person's not going to know. And so, you're constantly going to be in the dark. And once you're out of the story, you're out of the movie. Like, I'm telling you nothing else. I wouldn't even tell them what the fake documentary was about. I was like, "You, all you get is the found footage. And they both said immediately, we want to go full method. And I went, okay, then we're going to go full method. And so part of that was because they were both so willing to be this experimental and get their pages the night before and have basically no prep time. And we shot every scene three times, and the way that we did it was, I said, the first time that we shoot it, I want you to give me exactly what's on the page. The second time we shoot it, I want you to give me what's on the page, but feel free to play in the borders a little bit, you know, improv a little bit. And then the third time, give me what's in the scene, but give it to me in your character's voice and go wherever the hell you want. And I took all three cuts and usually for everything you're watching in the movie, it's like, you know, pieces of each of those versions. Um, You know, I kept in things like if somebody stumbled over their words or mispronounced something or misspoke. I mean, those were the takes I kept because they felt more real and they were both so willing to go with that, that we developed this very weird relationship where I was giving both of them their characters, you know, cd that they listened to in the car on their way to set and that they left when they that they listened to when they left it was like this is what your character listens to and but it's also sort of informing their experience as they're coming into the to the, the shoot throughout the week i would be like texting both of them and we called it the voice of god because it was never it was never eric it. texting it was always this inner sort of monologue where you know i text read and go how did you feel when Sophia was talking to the teacher and the teacher basically dismissed you as just being a camera guy how did that how did that make you feel yeah and you would write back and be like I you know I didn't like that very much because I feel like she gets all the attention I was like you know it sucks that she's got a copy of her award for that film that you shot for her and it's on her, her wall and you don't have one we have these dialogues going on and it was just between us so that when they walked onto the set and then I would like you know warm to one and freeze the other person out they really went into wherever they were supposed to go and it was just it was so much fun for me as a director and I realized I was torturing them and fucking with them to a huge degree but by the time they both saw the movie they didn't see it until it was done and when they watched it it was just like I will never forget watching it with Reed for the first time and him just looking at me and going fuck you I cannot (laughs) believe that you made me out to be a hoaxer, and you didn't <laughs> quite yeah, any of that was happening, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful.
1: <laughs> that is great. I'm loving that approach. It's like I do
0: too. I've never this... actually heard a director like really take this kind of approach, and I really like it. It's very different, and I very much like it.
2: Well, if you're directing, I mean, it's something I try to explain to my son. My son is eight, going on nine, and. You know, trying to explain to him what daddy does. You know, daddy makes movies. And, you know, the context I try to offer is I'm like, you know how when you take your action figures and, you know, you, you make them do voices and then they, they fight one another and whatever else. That's what I'm doing, except I'm a grown up and I'm using people. <laughs> and But they're still putting on costumes and pretending to be other people. And it's all make believe. And it's fun if you're it's always going to be stressful and it's always going to have moments that are incredibly taxing and there's going to be 50 times that you're going to go fuck this i'm never doing this again i quit I this <laughs> my last film but if if you're not having fun and having fun with the people you're doing it with you know it's this You know, and and every relationship, if you're the director, should be a different relationship. The, The relationship you have with your cinematographer is different from the one you have with your special effects people, which is different than the one you have with all of your actors. You know, it's a it's a thing where you have the opportunity to go in and sort of shape what you want all of these different people to do and guide them there while at the same time encouraging them to bring whatever talent that you saw in them. That, that caused you to hire them, you want to nurture that. You want to cultivate that. You don't want to just tell them where to stand and how to say it. You want them to bring that creativity to the table. And sometimes it requires thinking outside of the box. And, oh, my God, that's fun. It's fun to do that.
0: So are you working on anything now, currently?
2: I am – okay, so I can't, I can't say anything official, but what I can say is – are kind of three things in the ether right now <laughs> one may or may not be a sequel to a movie that i've already made that we may or may not have talked about and are still talking about okay um, okay
0: I like that. I, okay
2: <laughs> i also am potentially working with a number of other filmmakers on an anthology film um some films that you've probably seen. So Another more on that hopefully later. Subgenre
0: we like. Oh, I love anthologies.
2: <laughs> and uh, tippy top of my, my wish list, there is a script that I have sort of like, everything I've done has been to try to get to this dream project. Um, and by dream, I mean, you know, it's it's not an incredibly expensive film, but it's sort of been without, you know, Beyond my means to do up to this point. And, you know, Roulette, my first feature film, got me the opportunity to make Butterfly Kisses, and Butterfly Kisses is opening some doors. And I'm having some meetings with some very cool people who may or may not have worked on films that I grew up on, who are really digging what I want to do and want Ooh. to potentially work with me on it. So it's an exciting, exciting. time, especially during a time when COVID has really really changed the landscape of filmmaking, how films are not only made, but how they're released. Mm -hmm. We're watching the theatrical experience sort of dying. Everything is migrating over to streaming platforms. It's a, it's a, it's a very weird time to even sort of be taking meetings and pitching films when, you know, the new Christopher Nolan movie comes out and barely makes a dent, barely makes any money. Um, or, you know, Wonder Woman comes out and that's supposed to be the movie that lures everybody, you know, from their house back to the movie theaters. And it doesn't, um, it's a very (laughs) strange time for the industry. It
1: it is. You know, I, I found myself, I, I don't even like the thought of, you know, being, being in, being a nineties kid, it's really hard to think that theater's. Could be less of a thing or not a thing because it's a theater experience it is really heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I mean, just just for a variety of different reasons, you don't want people to lose jobs, so, so so on and so forth. But just even for the cinematic experience, I mean, I I may or may not have snuck into a Danbury Dollar Saver Theater in Fairfield and saw Blair Witch Project for the very first time. And had that experience <laughs> of sneaking into a movie theater, may or may not allegedly. Um, it's not like it matters. I it's not even like Sanchez that you <laughs> owe him. Um, oh,
0: I, I do. You owe him I like look... thirteen dollars, ma'am. <laughs> I really do. That theater's like they don't even exist anymore. It's like, but excuse <laughs> me, can you uh, can you get me his Venmo? I gotta, I gotta, we gotta, we gotta set this, this right. This is so <laughs>
1: terrible. This is like when it was so easy to sneak the theaters. This is so bad. Um, but just that whole experience of being a 90s kid and like going to see a movie in a theater like getting together with your friends and going to see a movie and and even certain movies there are
0: certain movies that have to be seen yeah you just have to have that experience of seeing
1: it in a theater and you have this i mean almost kind of like a concert where you sort of have like the camaraderie of the of the crowd in in the experience so with covid that like kind of flipped everything on in but One interesting thing that I think it did do, which you sort of touched on, is like these major budget movies that really rely on that theater experience. Like you said, Tenant and Wonder I mean, like nobody, nobody saw, like nobody really, they just did, they didn't even make a dent. But then you had a movie like Host come out or then you have, (laughs) then you have these like independent filmmakers that really just said, okay, well, we're going to do this. And it 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 what I think it did, if if anything came out of it is I think it started to put more, in in my opinion, kind of push more indie filmmakers to the forefront because they're because they know indie filmmakers know how to work how to make a little go a long way. They can work with so little. And if, like Casper had mentioned, if the storyline is there, then they've got it, and they don't need a big budget. They don't need a studio. They don't need big name. They don't need Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. They don't. They don't need them. They don't need that. So if it did anything, I think it pushed that more to the forefront. Which, for me, from someone who really love who loves, and and not even so much just in horror. I'm a I'm a huge. Kev- I mean, we talked about John Waters before. I'm a huge Kevin Smith fan. I mean. Clerks was made with nothing and he was a nobody and did it right in New Jersey in his hometown with his friends and it blew up and led to everything else he he's done. So I mean, if it did anything, it, it, it helped, I think it really helped push to the forefront that you can, that independent filmmakers have always been here and they're not going anywhere and they're, they can give big-budget films a run for their money. I mean, that may be saying a lot, but...
0: I have never actually... Like, with horror, especially, I don't need to see a big name. No. I, I don't need to see no, a big no, name no, to no. want it, to it, see In fact,
2: in a lot of ways, you shouldn't. And yeah. it, I, I feel that horror... You know, we, we talked about horror being sort of on the respectability meter. It's, you know, one notch above porn, but it's also... You know, it's also that genre where you don't need to have a movie star. It can be a random and anonymous person. In fact, horror has traditionally been the genre that breaks so many young actors. And you know, it's 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 very interesting because when you look at when you look at what's happened in the past year, and you look at the theater chains that have threatened to buckle and go under, and you look at something like. Um, you know, Wonder Woman, that you know, not only came out and you know barely made any theatrical money. Most of its revenue came from the fact that it was concurrently streaming on HBO. And a year ago, it would have been you know, over our dead body would we Warner Brothers release a summer tentpole film to TV. And now it's like you know, you're looking at Disney and Marvel going we are very clearly transitioning all of our characters and hot properties to television star wars you know we're looking at wandavision and falcon and winter soldier you know all of these things that were movies are making the switch to tv the whole paradigm is shifting and you know in some ways that is very very frightening and in other ways You know, you go, okay, well, the studios can't afford to make a movie that costs $300 million and does not succeed the way that they want it to. We can't make another solo a Star Wars movie. Um, We can make the mandalorian but we can't have an underperforming star wars movie come out in the theaters because you know people don't realize it's not just the cost of making the movie you spend at least that budget again on the market on the merchandising on all the tie-in deals and everything that makes you so saturated with the information that that movie exists that you want to see it um we can't make 300 million 400 million dollar movies anymore we can't You know, we we can't rely on those properties to sustain. Now, independent films on the flip side, uh, particularly horror films, can be made for so cheaply, can, you know, have a return that is many times the investment that is made. And a whole big part of that is, you know, whether you're looking at somebody like myself or you go back and you look at Eduardo Sanchez or you go further back, you look at Wes Craven, Sean S. Cunningham, Toby Hooper, you know, these people who Romero who had like two nickels that they were rubbing together and created something fucking awesome. That is what independent filmmakers are able to do, particularly with horror. They are, you know, we're the cockroaches. You know, if all the theater chains shut down tomorrow, we're still going to be making movies because we don't need $300 million to make them. The question just becomes at this point, what is our delivery mechanism going to be moving forward? Is the theatrical experience going to be what it is, uh, streaming platforms? It wasn't very long ago that, you know, everybody that was making an independent film was able to sell to Netflix – and Netflix would scoop up all kinds of shitty independent films. It didn't matter if it looked or sounded good or even up to, you know, spec. They would scoop it up and they would release it cuz it cost them nothing to acquire the property. Yep. Now Netflix makes all of its own content. And so Netflix does not want my movie. It doesn't want your movie or that guy's movie or that girl's movie. Um You know, it's the same thing. Now everybody has their own streaming platform. HBO's got one. Disney's got one. You know, we got Hulu. We've got we've got all these various platforms. Everything has its own thing. You know, you want to watch The Stand? You got to sign up for CBS just for that one damn thing. Yep. Um, What you know? How is a Butterfly Kisses Two or a different film that I make, hopefully moving forward, that is a dream project of mine? How is that going to reach you? And that's the big question mark.
0: That's one of the reasons why I love that your movie took off on Twitter. You know, like being a part of the horror community in Twitter, especially in Twitter. The horror community is massive in Twitter. And that's how I've heard a lot about a lot of movies that I've seen. Your movie in particular and uh, Host and, um, you know, multiple other movies. A lot of people are using Twitter to get it out there because word of mouth is just so much which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast because we have a, a little over 3000 subscribers now and I'm like okay well who however many people listen to this they can tell somebody else to watch the movie and then they can tell somebody else to watch the movie right. and then you know it just it keeps going down and down the line because I'm like her there are a lot of big directors that I like there are a lot of big movies that I like but I have such a soft spot And I love for independent filmmakers because you guys mostly rely on the storyline for everything and you do it so well. And the little money that you put into practical effects, little money that you put into, you know, whatever else you do, it's done so well that you forget you're even watching an independent film. You're just like, holy shit, like this movie could... I want to get this movie's word word out more. Like, when you find hidden gems, just like Hell House. Hell House is now a franchise. Like, once you can actually... And they're talking about making the Abaddon tapes now, which is really fucking cool, and I hope they do that. But it's just, it's all word of mouth. Like, if you can get that one person to hear about it, then it just can become this huge thing, and I just, I love that so much, and really appreciate everything that you guys do, because your hard work
2: definitely shows i think you guys
0: oh sorry go ahead
1: sorry No, no. no. i was (laughs) just gonna say
2: by that same token it, it goes both ways and that is that i could make the best movie in the world or the worst movie in the world it doesn't really matter the point is that i could create something and you know if if a if a thing exists does it exist if no one is watching it You know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to see it, you know, did that tree ever fucking exist? And it's that way with independent films, independent books, independent bands, all kinds of artists who are out there creating these things. And what's great about something like Twitter and Facebook, where I'm much more active, is the fact that not only does it give us an opportunity to be able to engage one-on-one in real time, with the very people we're creating these things for but it also inspires people like yourselves who are using what i consider the same level of creativity the same level of self propulsion and, and Moxie to say, we're gonna make a show, we're gonna go out there, we are gonna talk about the things that we like, and we're also going to be spotlighting, featuring and promoting artists. And so without a show like this, that you know I am very fortunate to have been invited to participate in, um, this is what makes this possible. Um, for an independent filmmaker. I I just said that a studio makes a movie and then spends that same budget over again on marketing and PR. Independent films don't have a marketing department. We don't have a PR department. I got picked up by a studio who released my film, but that studio is not Warner Brothers (laughs) who has their own built-in You know, group of people who are making sure there are big gulp tie ins and happy meals and all of that stuff that says toys.
0: Um, (laughs) I'm (laughs) requesting a peeping tom toy. Okay, now I
1: would
2: like a
0: bobblehead. If we could could make that happen,
2: (laughs) if you can make that happen, I will sign up. Be the first person.
1: (laughs) I was gonna say, we got to talk to some people now. Um,
2: it's, I guess, all I'm trying to say is thank you. Thank, for yes. what you're doing, and and, and that is also yes. extended to the you know tens of podcasts I've been on, the many podcasts, the many shows I've been on, all the people creating YouTube channels, and you know it, everybody that's doing exactly what you're doing and making it possible for somebody like me to make a film here in Baltimore and for have people all over the world to know it exists. That is so much something that you have direct responsibility and ownership in so thank you,
0: oh, well you that's so nice oh. <laughs> apparently we're like, number 10 in iceland totally <laughs> totally humbled someone <laughs> someone pointed that out to us they were like you're number 10 in iceland and i was like can we thank iceland thanks somehow? i think Iceland.
1: <laughs> appreciate
2: i guess they, you they create they, your own hashtag and therefore right and like, then it catches thanks. on hashtag and
1: iceland they keep that they keep that going um I know before, before we kind of wrap this up, there were some, there were some things that I personally wanted to ask you that are kind of unrelated to the film. Um, are there any, I, I have specific film directors that like I really enjoy and I like, I know I've had people even ask me, like I, I, I personally have had no aspirations to get in the film business. I can't act. I can't, (laughs) well, I mean, I probably could, but I can't memorize lines i i i was in a play when i was five and i was an eskimo i think i had like three lines I was probably the most I how could are you not with.
0: meryl streep at this point i, know, I don't right? understand
1: oscars <laughs> should just be pouring from the sky right now they but for um that eskimo. for that eskimo performance but um yeah i i've i i've never had any aspirations to get into film personally but for some it's just always been something that has movies have just sort of set my life there's just certain movies that i can just pinpoint that have had a memory and have just they they cement something in your brain and 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 then you sort of fall into once you get into that aspect of it then you have certain directors or filmmakers that you not just so much a movie that you like, well, then you have a filmmaker that you like because there's movies that, that they do in series. Um, I'm a Carpenter fan, more of his early stuff. Um, and usually I'm kind of one of these where it's like it's not Halloween. Actually, one of my favorite films of his was In the Mouth of Madness, and that's not so many underrated. People have any idea. It's so underrated. I'm a big H.P. Lovecraft fan, so In the Mouth of Madness, I think, is absolutely brilliant and most people have don't even know don't even know about it they don't even know it exists they've never even seen it um I'm a I'm a big Tarantino fan Scorsese James Wan um are there any filmmakers for you that you can say not even so much horror that maybe not or maybe inspirational or just ones that you yourself enjoy
2: um I watched the three movies I watched way too young that probably most influenced me. They were all horror films and they were in no particular order, the original nightmare on Elm street yes. *An American werewolf in London oh, and yes. the exorcist. And those are like my top three horror films of all time. Um, yep. I'm part of HBO generation one, yeah. which means that when it started, I was sitting there all day long watching HBO and So I received, you know, sort of a smorgasbord of films at a very young age that was also sort of the birth of the VCR and, um, you know, the mom and pop stores before Blockbuster and Errol's took over. And so, you know, I, I just I was very much sort of force feeding myself cinema yeah from a very young age and and not even necessarily stuff that was contemporaneous it was like i discovered vampires at a young age and yes. loved dracula and so i started with nosferatu you know yep. i went outside S- 7 years old i was collecting aluminum cans so i could have my mother take me to recycle them so i could go to the video store and buy a 7 dollar copy of nosferatu on vhs <laughs> Do um, yes. you still have community. it? I still have it. Yeah. Yes! A man <laughs> after my own heart. <laughs> I am a nerdy collector. If you could see the room I'm in right now, it would blow your mind. But, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I was all over the place with films. It wasn't limited to horror. Horror it was right. probably what most... Turned me on as a kid. I was also a comic book me too. collector. I've got thousands of comic books in long boxes behind me that you probably can't see. But um, you know, that was before we had the, the budget to make comic book movies and um reading Tolkien at a very young age. And Same. this we could make <laughs> Lord of the Rings happen. Right. Um so horror was really kind of my go-to. I was also part of that original Star Wars generation. Um, and the really interesting thing that happened was that you know i I became very obsessed at a young age with learning how to write my own scripts and you know i have to read dracula and then i need to watch every version of the movie and understand why changes are made in every single version and none of them actually correspond to the book um, I did the
1: same very... thing, but never became a filmmaker. I, I, I just kind of had the same brain, but never put it to, to use, I guess. I don't know.
2: It, it was, it was a very, yeah. I mean, it was, it was one of those things where I wanted to understand the thing that I wanted to make. Right. And what happened was in the late eighties, I want to say early nineties, a friend of the family, um, probably against my parents, better judgment said to a young preteen, Eric, who was like, hey, so, you know, I I know you're, like, really into Star Wars and, you know, you're really into movies and stuff like that. Have you ever heard of John Waters? And I said, no, who's John Waters? And he was like, all right, Eric, I am going to give you (laughs) a movie to watch. And it was filmed essentially in your backyard. It was made right here in Baltimore. And so what he gave me was what remains, for so many reasons, my favorite John Waters film, uh, Female Trouble. And I adore <laughs> this film, but <laughs> it dropped my jaw when I was 13, <laughs> or however old I was when I watched it, because it had, was clearly made with no money
1: yes! at all. Yeah. Uh,
2: bare competence in so many regards but it was just doing everything it could to shock and instigate a response from the viewer yes. and was made right here in Baltimore. And this movie changed my entire perspective. Suddenly like, you know, I was thinking Star Wars before then, like I'm going to be the guy who grows up and I'm going to make the Lord of the Rings. Right. <laughs> and now I'm going, I don't have to make the Lord of the Rings. I could make something here and it could be just a person eating dog shit you know like like pink flamingos or you know (laughs) whatever other horrible things r.i.p miss divine
1: wherever she may be
2: (laughs) yeah exactly and you know i mean divine was such a influence and the crazy part was that you know suddenly this sent me down this other rabbit hole i still love star wars i still love lord of the rings i still wanted to see batman movies and spider-man movies but I was also going, I wanna find midnight movies, drive in movies, yes. trash movies, yes. trauma movies, Tra- all of this stuff. <laughs> and as I'm going down that rabbit hole, I am discovering these filmmakers who at the time fit that category. Um, guys named Sam Raimi, guys named Peter Jackson, yes. and, you know, the sort of young filmmakers with these outside of the box ideas making these bizarre horror films I, I, I went to a convention about a Japanese import of Meet the Feebles in like 1992 I have, um, I have
1: a copy of Meet the Feebles from a convention so yeah
2: there you go exactly yeah. I started I'm buying Roger Corman's you know Fantastic Four on the black market you know I, I, I'm discovering all of these like these these Filmmakers who are totally speaking my sensibility, and then what happens? They go on to make The Lord of the Rings. Yes. The <laughs> to go on yes. and make these, these fucking huge epics because their indie sensibility was financed with hundreds of millions of dollars, and they could use that sort of, you know, convention of the studio system breaking ideology to do something different with tentpole films and challenge what people expect. So, I mean, that, that was really an important moment for me discovering independent cinema and then also seeing it was possible to stay indie, like some of the people we've talked about, like John Waters, but also to move on from indie and depending on what your perspective on some of these filmmakers is, Some of them may be sold out. Some of them may be stuck to their indie sensibility. In some cases, that might have worked out for them or it might have backfired on them. It's a very interesting conversation for another day. But I find that independent cinema, the smart producers and the smart studios are looking for the fresh voices. Because let's face it, let's face it, if we're talking horror movies and just cinema in general, one of the most important eras is the 1970s when the studio systems collapsed and all of these, you know, sort of like professional journeymen directors were no longer making the films because the film school brats like Coppola, Scorsese, Spielberg, De Palma, you know, George Lucas, um, all of these people, John Milius, were coming in with these, you know, very, avant-garde ideas off the hook idea is people like william friedkin who watched the french new wave movies and it's like you don't need to lock a camera down you can like do handheld stuff look here's the french connection and then he makes the exorcist yes it's it's we need to be looking at those people especially now with what's happening to cinema um post 2020. so Hi, Hollywood. I'm available. I've got some really cool scripts. Um, Come to me. I am not expensive. And I'll make cool things for you.
0: One director that really comes to mind as you're talking about that, I will never forget. I was, you know, how when you're scrolling on Facebook sometimes and then a trailer for something will just pop up out of nowhere. Hereditary. Hereditary popped up out of absolutely nowhere. I had no idea what to expect with that film. I went into the film pretty much completely blind, hated it the first time I saw it because it was advertised wrong. (laughs) So when I saw it the second time, brilliant. I don't think Ari Aster planned on his two films becoming massive as they've become. So, I mean, like, for instance, like there's a Midsummer tattoo on my hand. So, (laughs) um... I really feel like it's just like I was talking about earlier. You just got to get it in that one little ear, and like, um, I. Well, Midsummer
1: really struck a chord because that that movie. A lot of people saw Hereditary because of Midsummer. Well, and then Midsummer either completely enraptured people
0: or it pushed them far, (laughs) far, far. (laughs) And then they asked him, and he's like, "It's a breakup movie," and I'm like, "I mean, it is. Yeah, it is." (laughs) It is, but I just but, love seeing like, and I really wish you the best. I really, really wish, hope, and wish you the best on your big project, especially. I really hope you can get that off the, the ground. I really do. And then you know, when you're when you're big, when you're like a big name in Hollywood, I'm gonna be like, we need to interview him again.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Tell you what. First of all, any time you want me back, whether I'm a nobody or a somebody. I, I have had such a good time talking to both of you. So please, uh, thank you for inviting me. Feel free to invite me back anytime. I don't Yay. just have to talk about my shit. I've got plenty of other things I can talk about. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, um, you're somebody talking. to us, by the way. You're somebody to us. So.
2: Well, thank you. Here's <laughs> my question, though. Since you both have ink, if I make, if I'm able to make that dream project happen, will you get tattoos for that movie? I if mean, I'm making, tattoo.
0: I mean, you know, my midsummer, t- do you see it on the fingers
2: too? I got, I I, 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 see it. I see it. And in fact, I wanted my entire life to get a tattoo. And <laughs> you know, fly kisses was released that I got my very first tattoo, which is peeping Tom on my arm.
0: Nice.
2: And, um, so I'm on a mission to now say, if you've got a midsummer tattoo, I need to inspire you to get something for something that I make in the future. I would and totally, down
1: the road. I would totally get a peeping tom tattoo. I would get a butterfly kisses tattoo. I actually. would, I oh, would, a
3: hundred. It. It. We can have I would hundred percent
0: get a peeping tom tattoo. Like, hold on, like, let me screenshot. Let's get it heard in here. here. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm... <laughs> yeah, honestly, I don't even know if it would even need to be your big film. Like, I probably would get a butterfly kisses tattoo because how fucking cool would it be to get a camera lens? With Peeping Tom in it. Like, come on. Oh, like the
1: eye.
2: Like the actual the, camera the lens. Eye of and the, then like, yeah, he's with the, him.
0: See, oh,
1: I'm see,
2: already yeah, coming the, up with ideas. The wheels are already spinning. <laughs> if this were to happen, I would die a very happy man to do that. I had successfully inspired somebody with something I created in my life. And there is a permanent record of it. So um just
0: I'm making, no pressure, but if you do You're like no pressure. Do you want to hear something really funny? I am actually doing my bathroom in Blair Witch.
3: Very cool. <laughs> I, I
0: am knows. doing my entire bathroom in Blair Witch right now. So <laughs> it's a well, wonder if you,
2: send me, if you send me pictures of that, I'll forward them on to Ed Sanchez and we'll see what his uh his impression is.
1: And it's a
0: wonder I absolutely
1: I, will. <laughs> I don't have a I never got a Blair Witch tat tattoo oh that's did a, i tell you wonder. so i have a plan a for
0: a blair witch tattoo actually um i'm going to get a tree oh yeah, yeah, yeah and then i'm going to get a silhouette of a skinwalker next to the tree and hanging from the tree will be the blair witch symbol very nice so
2: very nice make this happen i will yeah
0: <laughs> and then we'll have to forward that
2: on i'd to be like here's and, all my blair witch stuff see what he thinks of it <laughs>
0: Awesome.
1: This has been a blast. This has been Eric, so much fun. Thank you so oh my, my goodness. goodness, Eric. Um, we Yeah, could, I could
0: sit here and talk to you. It's been night, an honestly. hour and forty minutes, <laughs> Um,
1: but we could, like I said, we could do this forever. This has been so awesome, and um, you know, thank you for thanking us. Yeah, thank, <laughs> that, thank that, you you're for so doing nice. This. Oh my thank goodness, thank you for your film. Um, everybody, please go see. Go buy Butterfly. Where can where can they purchase it? If they yeah, if we want to like hard buy the DVD, the Blu-ray DVD. Uh-huh.
2: I'll give the I'll give the quick spiel. If you want to check out my work, um, you can go on Amazon Prime, where I've I've written a number of films. I've I've done numerous things on various films, but uh, the two that I've written and directed are called Roulette and Butterfly Kisses. They're both streaming on Prime for free. Awesome. You can also get Blu-rays anywhere Blu-rays are sold. That includes awesome. Best Buy, Barnes and Noble, all that fun stuff. Um, I write film criticism for Ain't It Cool News. Feel free to check it out. I usually write on franchise um history and genre theory i've written tons on horror um and also if you enjoy butterfly kisses and you want to go further down the rabbit hole i advise that you go on amazon and check out this anthology book called in the blink of an eye that has a number of authors primarily horror authors playing in the sandbox of the butterfly kisses universe and telling all sorts of stories that happen sort of you know before and after and in between very very cool stuff and while you're doing that folks at home listening watching whatever it is you might be doing please remember that all of the independent artists myself as well as the hosts of this very show that you are checking out right now we are very very much reliant upon the reviews Upon the ratings, upon the sharing on all the social media platforms, these are the things that influence and alter and augment the algorithms so that my movies, this show, independent books and bands and comic books and things like that are pushed out as recommendations to new audiences who, frankly, do not need to be reminded about whatever new Marvel show is coming on. What they need is to know about all of the various independent voices that are out there doing things that are off the cuff. So please, as soon as you're done, make sure that you rate and review this show. Check out my stuff. Maybe consider rating and reviewing that as well. And all of the other people who are giving you awesome free content, such as what you're listening to right now. Um, just remember, those people are only going to prosper if you, again, rate and review and share and tell a friend.
0: Should we hire him as like. Yeah. A, <laughs> we, should, you can, we, should, we should just we hire him our as a, a marketer. You marketing. can be our marketer. But we'll hire you as a marketer. I'm here
3: for it. I'm here for it. <laughs>
0: Oh my goodness, Eric! You've been amazing. I can't wait to have you back. I I really can't. And we fun. actually are doing another interview with someone we've already had on the show again for June. So absolutely, we will bring you back one hundred percent. We will Thanks, and the definitely. And staying, awesome. we'll stay amazing. in contact on Twitter
2: too. Yeah. So you better, you better. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Thank you both so much. All right, thank you. Thank you. Right. you
0: have a good night, Eric.
1: Have a great night. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.
0: Wow. Guys, that was so much fun. I'm, I'm speechless. (laughs) I'm thankful my phone lived. It's like 24%. I'm like stressing semi, like slightly stressing. I saw it at 33% and I was like, (laughs) oh no. Oh (laughs) no. (laughs) Now look at this. Yeah. (laughs) Make it. Make
1: it. Um, I'm speechless. I, I know that doesn't happen often, but I'm, I'm, guys, Please, 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 the please. fact that
0: he's watching our watch show, watch Butterfly Kisses. <laughs> what a nice man!
1: Um, please watch Butterfly. I can't Kisses. wait to watch Roulette. Actually, um, I'm I'm excited to watch Roulette. I'm excited to watch Butterfly Kisses again. Oh yeah. Now knowing all I, all that I know in the process, that's why we really love. I know for me, I love doing these interviews. Not not just so much because they're fun, but because you do get those insights. To the movie that when you go back and watch it again, it's like you're watching it through a whole new set of eyes. No, no, no no pun intended with the blinking. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I would love to have him back on. And I mean it. I will. Guys, I wish you could have seen his Peeping Tom tattoo. But let me tell you right now, I am totally down to get a Peeping Tom tattoo. And when I do, I will be posting pictures I just—I really think have I have to figure like like out what part I of did. my body I'm gonna put it on because
0: I'm running out of areas. I really like my idea with the camera lens and him being at the—that is the the end really of the cool. Camera lens. I like that. <laughs> no one take it. That's my idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one. That's me. That's funny. You're me. like that's mine. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. because he's so good, such good friends with Eduardo. Maybe when I get my Blair Witch tattoo, I'll put it near it. I'll kind of put them... I'll kind of put them next to each other in I mean, way. I want
1: it to be somewhere... I don't know. Guys, I'll think of somewhere to put, put it. I'll put it on my
0: fucking forehead. <laughs> now look at this. Yeah. <laughs> and don't blink. <laughs> like staring at someone and and intently blink. like, Oh, you blink. He coming. Oh, Lottie. Cum- oh, <laughs> oh, Lottie spooping. <laughs> oh, Lottie spooping. Okay, guys. So next week... Um, We are going to be talking about the Black Dahlia, which is something that, you know, we've been wanting to talk about for fucking (laughs) whatever.
1: Oh my God, yeah. We wanted to do an episode about that for the longest time. Um, It's a really famous case that a lot of people know about, that a lot of people have heard about. Um, And it's even... It's got so many different elements to it. There's a tie-in with... um, I almost forgot, the Cecil Hotel, we talked about it in our episode that um, Elizabeth Smart, who ultimately became the Black Dahlia, possibly stayed there, or at least had a drink in the lobby before she was brutally murdered. Um, We're pretty sure we know who did it, um, even though he was never charged with the murder. Um, But his son, who was a former police officer... Wrote a very extensive book about it. And he has appeared in numerous documentaries about the fact that he firmly, without a doubt, believes that his father was the murderer. That his father also murdered other women. His father performed illegal abortions. So he's not a good guy. And his house still stands to this day. And it's possibly the home that Elizabeth Smart was murdered in. Ghost Adventures did an episode there. The house is absolutely gorgeous, but purportedly very 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 haunted um i personally became very obsessed with this case in particular um rotten.com was a really popular website that was around in the early 90s that just had the grossest sickest pictures on it stuff stuff from like uh the Angels of Death is that videos the, is that
0: the one that has like all of the crime scene photos? Oh, we had all from, the crime scene photos. From, like Jeffrey yeah, Dahmer,
1: all those uh, Dennis Rader, JFK's. And, uh, you know, the back of his head blown open. Yeah, you know, like all those pictures. Um, all that stuff. Just, just uh, car accidents. Uh, it just, it had the crazy. If you were a weird kid like me, which is something that I did want to, that I did want to stress to Eric. Um, you know. Being a kid, you know, when he was describing about being into like indie films, those weird indie films, I was I was such a weird kid and such an outcast that those type of films are kind of what gave me a circle of friends in high school because we were all into like Killer Clowns from Outer Space and Evil Dead and like all these super weird movies that no one knew about. And through word of mouth, we we found out about all these other weird movies because we weren't We liked the mainstream stuff, but we weren't into the mainstream stuff. We were into the underground stuff that now everybody knows about. But back then, you were sort of a nerd or a dork or a weirdo or an outcast if you were into it. So, again, being the weirdo outcast that I was, Rotten.com was on the list. And the Black Dahlia crime scene photos were on here. And they are so distressing. Her her body was completely mutilated, cut in half it's the, the Glasgow smile. I'm sure you can look up the photos now. Uh, it's also the photos that I saw of, uh, there was just an Ed Gain documentary that was released on Discovery Plus. If nobody's watched that recently, it's, it's incredible. Uh, Plainfield, Wisconsin does not want people traipsing around. I would not recommend visiting. They are not happy that people only know them because of Ed Gain. Um, but it was one of the first places that I saw the crime scene photos from Ed Gain's house. And you got to see the the skin stuff, you know, that people talk about now, but Rotten.com had the pictures, so um, that's how I first found out about the Black Dahlia. The pictures are horrific, Um, but then it kind of got me spiraling down this rabbit hole of it being this really famous unsolved crime and then take it a step further where um, the, the, the story of the doctor and the son ultimately saying that his dad killed her but was never brought up on charges and then the dad has this really crazy story I had an illegitimate daughter that was black. And it, it, it just falls down a whole rabbit hole that we'll get into with the episode, but I can't wait to talk about it. Um, in case anybody doesn't know rotten.com is defunct. You, you can, I think you can still go to the website, but all it has is just the, the main page. It It's like not in existence anymore. Um, but yeah, that's how I first found out about it. The crime scene photos are absolutely horrific. I'm sure without Rotten.com, you can look them up now. You can look up damn near fucking anything horrible on the internet. You anymore. really can. Before yeah. it was like Rotten.com is where you, you had, to had to like now You had to go like on, a, like, on, the, on
0: the dark web for yeah. everything, now everything. Now is it's just,
1: just like regular. It's, it's on Facebook or Twitter. It's like right <laughs> fucking there. It's um, literally right there. We will not be publishing the photos just to let everybody know, Um, you know, we do promo photos and I don't think that's appropriate. It kind of is upsetting because Elizabeth Smart was a person and that's how she's forever remembered now is how her body was gruesomely dismembered. But we won't be posting the photos. I just want people to know that you can you can find them, though. They're out there. Oh yeah, it's
0: a, it's a it's a Google She wave. was a gorgeous
1: woman though. So it I would is hope a people Google I wave. would hope people would remember her from what she looked like before she was murdered because she was absolutely gorgeous.
0: And of course, you know we usually do this at the beginning, but you know, I work for my sponsor. Come your body down. Yeah.
1: Sorry, I went on a bit of a tangent. I just really really love the Black Talia case and I know we're going to talk about it. I'm just excited because I love it so much. Um, so guys, uh, we, so we're, we're, yeah, we're going into May. Um, haven't, I don't want to yet reveal what the new bath bomb scent will be, but there is a new one on the way. Um, for now, we've still got the lavender chamomile ones for everybody to buy. They're going to, they're, they're still available. Um, thank you for all the continued support since the price increases, uh, everything's available on Etsy. Just search Calm Your Body Down. Um, free shipping is still available in the continental U.S. So order up, and thanks again for all the support.
0: Calm your... <coughs> oh, God. oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <Bing>. <laughs> all right, guys, you know the rules. We have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All that don't fuck with the original... If you want to say hey or to send us a you know, say whatever you wanna say, we have an email DFWTO eighty four ninety three at gmail dot com. And of course leave a review like Eric said to do. <laughs> leave a review on iTunes. Listen and to of the course, man. We're also on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Give us a follow, give us a subscribe. And yeah. I think I think I think that was... we got it all. I, I think, think we nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. All right, guys. Go check out Butterfly Kisses. Go do it and go check out Roulette. Make sure to give Eric Myers all your love. He is an amazing man. Have a great week. Be safe. We love you. on.